who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. What does feminism mean to you? During Women's History Month, come explore feminism and how it's playing out in real life with season two of Thread the Needle, a monthly podcast. I'm your host, Donna Schill. I'll use my background in journalism to dive into topics that matter to women today, from divorce to call-out culture to masculinity to girls' confidence. Season two of Thread the Needle finds the meeting place between feminist ideals and the realities of women's lives. Listen to Thread the Needle wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Your Angry Angry Neighborhood Neighborhood Feminist. Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspectives. Yes. Hi. Hi. Hi, hi. So this week we are going to be talking about feminism in Latin America. It is Hispanic Heritage Month. And I always find it really interesting learning about the feminist perspectives from other countries. We did an episode, one, this is a continent, not a country, but um, we did that episode on uh, Ireland a while ago. But that was still very Eurocentric. It is very, it mirrors the United States very, very much. And this was interesting to me because it's a very different perspective. The the things that these people and these women and these feminists go through are different than the more Eurocentric right. feminism. I mean, it, whenever you're looking at feminism on a grander scale, I feel like you're always going to see similarities in yes. the waves. Like, uh-huh. um, there's... A lot of similarities I have found, at least in what we have looked at as far as, like, when that you, you're going to start seeing surges. Yes. So there was definitely a very distinct, like, first and second wave totally. that mirrored the same time periods, I would say, as, like, North American or European yeah. Um, feminism. Yeah, and they say that they do get a lot of their theories from Western countries, but they have been able to personalize it through their own Latin American history. Absolutely. I mean, and also there was a lot of things going on in a lot of Latin American countries that were not happening, especially like when, when you're talking about like author- authoritarian re- regime, yes. blah, 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 authoritarian regimes yes. and things like that Definitely. happening in those areas that affected the way that people looked at feminism. Well, and what their movements were. And what their movements were yeah. and how they moved. So <laughs> I found this a little bit hard to research because... It's broad. It's incredibly broad. So it's not only South America, but it's also Central America. So when we're talking about like all of Latin America, there are a lot of countries in Latin America and a lot of different experiences, not only because there are different countries, but also um, Latin culture 
uh, differs differs greatly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I wanted to I wanted it to be a broader topic because I find it interesting to hit a lot of different points sure, and get yeah. a kind of broader spectrum. Mm-hmm. We are not when we are talking about Latin America, we are not trying to say this is how it is everywhere. Absolutely. You know, we're this is a very generalized, broad topic that has opened a door for me now to want to learn more about specific countries. There are countries in my research that are highlighted more than others. I would be interested to learn more about those and some of the ones that were talked about a little bit less. But I feel like it's a good uh, window opening to feminism in different cultures. Yeah, it's a jumping off point for sure. Exactly. And we definitely wanted to do a, a shout out to these cultures and feminism within these cultures during this month. Exactly. It's very important. Yeah. So feminist philosopher Ophelia Shute has argued that feminist philosophy requires a larger home in broader Latin American feminist theory and not in the discipline of philosophy in Latin America. So she really hones in on the importance of Latin American feminism being part of more of the mainstream, people learning more about it, because really, Latin American feminism was not really discussed until fairly recently, even though it's been happening for a very, very long time. Yeah, I mean, and I think, um, if I'm remembering correctly, that quote was also said in relation to there being a bit of, like, a class difference. Definitely. Which was huge uh, at the time in yeah. Latin America whenever feminism first started coming to the forefront, which yeah. was in probably the early 1900s. You started seeing, like, trickles of it, yes. or you started seeing people of prominence talking about it. Right. That and, is, that's called epistemic privilege. Yeah. And they yeah. were speaking from, a, and it's the same thing that happened in the United States when we talk about first wave feminism, yes. um, or probably also in Europe, where it kind of lacked inclusion to the experiences of lower class. It was very middle class, prominent people that didn't really have an understanding of the everyday citizen. Right. And even though sometimes they might have tried to step in and speak for the everyday citizens, they didn't have that firsthand knowledge of what it was really like. It's like, this is what I think is going on with and, you. And what, what I think, think you need. Be good yeah. for you. Yeah. Right, exactly. So let's go through a little bit of the history. We go all the way back to the 1880s. Take a trip with me there. Um, like I was saying, the term feminist was not really used to describe women's rights and advocates until the 1890s, but the movement began earlier than that. There is a woman named Manuela Saenz. She was born in Quito, which is now Ecuador, which I didn't know. Me neither. Learned something new. In 1797, she was a precursor to the women's emancipation. She was an early supporter of independence, and she would spy on Spanish royalty and would have these intellectual gatherings called tertulias. Fun fact... As I So I was trying to type my notes out this morning because it's easier with my eyesight to be able to see it after I've written it down, which I need to fix my methods because it takes forever to do what I do. But I was trying to type tertulias, and it kept fucking auto-correcting it to tortillas. And I'm like, y'all are racist. Yeah, first of all, what first are you trying all, to say? And I had to add, like, a bunch of S's at the end of it for them to not correct it. I was getting so frustrated. I was like, what the fuck, Apple? But she's actually really cool. I was reading her Wikipedia page. You're going to hear me say this a lot, where I went off on tangents reading about particular people. Because she was, like, for years, they would portray her as this, like hyper-feminine, sexually promiscuous kind of woman where the more research that was done on her realized that a lot of that wasn't true. She wasn't this hyper-feminine, almost royal-looking. You know, she was from a well-to-do family and things like that. But she was, like, 
this spy who would gain information and she would pass out leaflets and she was like very, very active in the movement for independence and for women's rights at the time. Very, very fascinating woman. Juana Manuela Garidi was an Argentinian journalist and writer born in 1818. She advocated for the greater rights of women and wrote books with female protagonists, and her books were both romantic and political, which I would assume at the time would be incredibly popular with women. Oh, for sure. You know, you get the romance, then you also kind of get, like, women's rights and politics and different things added into it, which is a really great way to inform people about the inequalities between men and women to be able to have a book that's like that. Um, it's also probably less threatening to men in a lot of ways because oh, it's they're this, reading like, a romance yeah, novel. Yeah, what's Whatever. the big deal? And they're probably less likely to read it. Exactly. Oh, so sneaky. I know. So sneaky. Uh, she would also hold Tertullius for literary men and women. She was friends with a lot of other feminists, such as Clarinda Mato de Turner and Teresa Gonzalez. Her father was a politician and soldier who signed the Argentine Declaration of Independence. That's amazing. Isn't that cool? Yeah. I thought that was super cool. So then we move kind of into the 1900s from there. And much like in the United States, the late half of the 19th century focused on suffrage, protective labor laws, and education for women. In 1910, in Argentina, the first meeting of the International Feminist Congress was held. And the second was actually held in Mexico in 1916, which I think is really cool that these big feminist groups got together into Latin American countries during that time. I want to bring up somebody who I thought was really cool. And actually, I will probably end up doing um, a bit more talking about her maybe later this month, possibly. There's a few people for me where I'm like, "Mm, but have have you ever heard of Petra Herrera of Mexico? Yes. So Petra Herrera of Mexico disguised her gender and went by the name of Pedro Herrera Mm -hmm. to form an all woman army after splitting from Pancho Villa, one of the most prominent generals in the Mexican Revolution. So Herrera, Petra Herrera, blew up bridges and demonstrated extraordinary leadership abilities, having gained a reputation as an excellent soldier. One day she showed everyone her braids and shouted, I'm a woman and I will continue to carry out my duties as a soldier using my real name Mexican uh, that's from Mexican author uh, Elena Poniatowska we're gonna do our best name. you guys yes we're doing our best um, and she wrote this in the book called uh, La Sol- Soldaleras I think that's how you say that Soldaleras Soldal I don't know we're doing our best I'm trying listen guys I'm running on almost no sleep yeah. I, I can hardly read right now we're here for your um, we're here for your support Keegan we're not here to tear you down Petra Herrera continued to fight in combat and took part together with some 400 other women in the second battle of Torreon on May 30th 1914 perhaps it was because her worth as a soldier was never formally recognized that Petra was motivated to form her own brigade which quickly grew from 25 to 1,000 wow. women so that's really really cool yeah and that actually kind of leads me into the person I wanted to talk about from that time I just wanted to to point out that I got that from uh, telesureenglish.net so I went on like this dive where I was like trying to read a bunch of different articles uh, to try and find some new information and I have no idea what that even means telesureenglish.net but I wanted to give them credit since I did directly just read from their website by all means (laughs) so that kind of brings me into wanting to talk about Emilia Robles Avila uh, in the 1910s, he what what we would probably consider today, and what he would probably be identified 
as is a trans man. Um, he fought as a colonel in the Mexican Revolution. He lived openly as a man from age 24 to his death in 1984 at age 95. He is fascinating. He enlisted in the army in either 1911 or 1912. They're not really sure on the date. But that was to avoid an arranged marriage. <laughs> he was like, he was no. like, deuces, no. no, thank you. Yeah, well, he lived a very unconventional life. Like he, you know, from a young age, was very interested into things that would be normally very masculine. And I just think that wasn't the. That's not how he identified. He didn't identify with any sort of womanhood. He's like, I don't want. That's not the life that I see for myself. I want to be part of this revolution. And he would actually get money for the army from oil companies for the revolutionary cause. Uh, he began to dress as a man two years after joining the army, and he demanded to be treated as such. Uh, Maria de la Luz Barrera and Angel Jimenez were also male-identifying soldiers at the time. So this is kind of a, I don't know if they were what we would consider or they would identify th themselves as transgender, but it's interesting that you discussed you know, male appearing people right. to yes. be part of all I, of this. I don't think that Petra Herrera um, identified as trans, right? But she, but she was male appearing to be able to, to be part yes, of that. Yes, which I think is honestly, we should do an entire episode because this is something that has happened frequently throughout history. There have well, we always talked been... about what was her name, Deborah Sampson. Yes, in the Revolutionary. Yes, women's. I mean, and it's it's something that has happened across all cult cultures since I mean, the beginning of Mul time. Mulan. Yeah, there's Mulan. <laughs> I mean, it, it has literally happened all the time. There's yeah. a ton of instances of it happening during the Civil War as well. Um, so I think that that would be a fascinating topic just to talk about women who have done this, either women who have done this or people who we would now consider to be trans or who may self have identified that way. Yeah, especially at the time. because there's a ban on being transgender in our military. Like, yes, that would currently, be a very yes. fascinating thing for us to discuss the history behind that. Mm -hmm. So he became colonel in 1913 and was very well respected. He settled in Iguala after the revolution, where he was attacked by a group of men who wanted him to reveal his anatomy. So he killed two of them out of self-defense. Well, I know. It's like, well, he had it coming. Um, <laughs> Amen. Overall, his male identity was accepted by his family, society, and the Mexican government. According to his neighbor, if anyone called Robles a woman or referred to him as Donia, he would threaten them with a pistol. Which I'm like, yeah. Yeah. Make, makes sense. Fuck off. He had two requests on his deathbed, to receive honors for his military service and to be buried dressed as a woman to commend his soul to God. Which makes oh, me think... Oh, that's so sad. Isn't that sad? That it was like, he was so accepted in his lifetime and he was so proud of his accomplishments, but he was raised in a Catholic family in Mexico. You know, there was probably still an idea for him that he had to honor... The way he was, quote unquote, born. And that brings us in to anatomy, you know, kind of, um, I think that kind of segues us into discussing the cultural differences between, you know, what we might understand as like Western feminism or the United States. Because I don't want to say Western because, you know, these countries are in the West. Yeah. But when we're talking about like North American feminism or European feminism, kind of some of the cultural differences. I've talked before about like my experience with black culture. And I think there's a lot of overlap, at least in the United States, between like Latinx cultures and black cultures as yeah. far as feminism is concerned, because there is this highly um, 
masculine. There's this like mach- machismo. I was gonna kind say a of... lot of people fought against the machismo. Yeah, yeah, there's a ton of like machismo culture uh, in Latinx cultures and like very aggressive male culture in Black cultures as yeah. well, which makes something like feminism difficult. You know, when we talked about our toxic masculinity episode, yeah, because those things do end up becoming inherently anti-woman just because mm-hmm. of the nature of how that works. Yeah, um, and then in addition to that, a big cultural difference is not that there aren't, you know, a lot of Catholics in the United States. Of course there are. But um, a lot of Latin America is overwhelmingly Catholic. Right. And and a lot of their, like, a lot of their society is based mm -hmm. around religion. Yes. And and because of that, you know, anytime you have a society that's based around religion, not necessarily just Catholicism, I would say it's the same thing in the Bible Belt here in the United States, um, you tend to cling much more towards uh, traditional gender roles and traditional relationship, very heteronormative kind of like relationships exactly. as well. So those things don't necessarily lend themselves to a good intersectional feminist experience. Yeah. And so it would have presented kind of unique challenges, the combination yeah. of the way these cultures operated and then their like very deep religious roots. Yeah. Well, I find it interesting. He actually got married to a woman. They adopted two children together. Like he lived his life and as a man and he was very accepted by society and but those you know, roots run government, deep, you but, know but he still has this catholic upbringing that makes me so sad that he's like i still like i want to get to heaven so i must be dressed as a woman to yeah, come in to God. yeah those roots run super deep you know like they're hard to they're hard to leave behind yeah yeah, really hard to leave behind. Mm-hmm. So in the 1930s, this was... I was reading it was the beginning of the suffrage movement, but I believe from what I read, it started way before that. I believe it was an insurgence of yeah, it. Yeah, I, w- I would say the article that we read, which was actually a very in-depth Wikipedia article. It was Wikipedia, article, but it was really good. <laughs> it, it was really good. There were... Because it was... I think because it was Wikipedia, there were some inconsistencies. Yeah. Um, and that was one that I noted as well. Is like, I believe that the suffrage movement probably started before that. Yes. And they said that it did, and then they also said it started in the 30s. I, so, I believe what they mean is that there was another insurgence of that. Yeah, and also, again, we are talking about so many countries and yes. several regions. So, you know... It could have been different. Different in started, different places. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Felisa Rincon de Gautier was the first female mayor of a capital city in the Americas in 1932. She was an active participant in Puerto Rico's women's suffrage movement, and her childcare programs went on to inspire the U.S. Head Start programs, which is basically like school be- for your kids before they yes, go to kindergarten. Yes, we had a Head Start, yeah. um, you know, in my school district growing up. Yeah, it's good school preparedness, and I think that's really cool that, you know, being a Puerto Rican mayor, she was able to influence the United States in a way. You know what I mean? I feel like the U.S. likes to take a lot of credit for things. Absolutely. I think it's cool to mm-hmm. see the, where they took inspiration from a mayor in Puerto Rico yeah. and said, that's a great idea. We should implement and that. And several articles that I did read did go out of their way to point out that the reason why we don't have as much knowledge about feminism in Latin America is because 
it is so centered on literature. The study yeah. of like feminism is so centered. It's very on, theory. Yeah, and yeah. and it's and it's centered on so much literature, and so much of the literature has come out of um, North America or Europe, exactly. or has been so focused on that that we tend to disregard. And it's you know probably. There's some racism there. Um, Very we, much so. We tend to disregard uh, the contributions of people from Latin America. Because it was very personal. It was very movement-based. There were a lot of poets, writers, things like that, that, that were, as I've read, inspired by some of the Western things, but were able to take their personal accounts and put it into that. But there was a lot of people that weren't putting it into literature, they just had a cause that they believed in, and they went for it, and they did these things, you Right. Know? I mean, and as we will point out a little later on as we work our way through the timeline, you know, when you're dealing with things that we in the United States didn't have to deal with, such as, like, dictatorships and authoritarian yes. regimes, it's going to shift the focus of what is important. Yeah. Like, you know, at this moment, it's like, it's not practical to focus on, you know, something that we might be focusing on in the United States whenever you're battling a dictatorship, a dictatorship yeah, you know? exactly, exactly. Most women advocating for equal rights had to cling to their femininity to gain respect, but Julia de Burgos, uh, who was a Puerto Rican poet, um, used her writing to challenge this, stating that womanhood and motherhood are not synonymous. So she really did her best to, you know, because we talked about this too with the feminists and the suffragette era in the U.S., you know, they still kind of very much clung to their femininity, but st- saying that even though we are mothers and, all, you know, not working, we still deserve the rights of men. Right. Where I like that she pointed out the fact that womanhood and motherhood are not synonymous. Like, and in progressive for the time as well. Very much so. This was like in the 1930s, I believe. Dr. Leila Gonzalez was involved in the Brazilian black movement and helped develop the practice of black feminism in Brazil, which I think is awesome. I've had discussions with um, my ex-boyfriend's family about, you know, colorism in some of the countries that they're from and things like that. And I think it's important for um, to point her out for making a black feminist movement in Brazil where darker-skinned Brazilians may have felt very marginalized. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is a ton of colorism. I mean, there's a ton of colorism in the black community as well. Oh, yes. um, There is a lot of colorism in Latin American communities and Central American communities, which is really, really, like, upsetting and disheartening because actually the most of, like, the slave trade that was happening at the time, the transatlantic slave trade, most of it was going on in the Caribbean and in, like, Central and South America. Yeah. Um, You know, look at how much it has influenced the United States and then think about the fact that, like, it most of the slave trade went to those areas. Yeah. So, uh, you know, my stepfather's mother, so my grandmother, uh, she's Panamanian. Yeah. But she's black. You yeah. know what I mean? And, like, those things are not mutually exclusive. She is a Latina woman. Yeah. You know? But she's seen as being a black woman. There's... In the United States, she is. Even yeah. though she has, like, a Panamanian accent. Spanish is her first language. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's very... I'm glad that at the time, and, I mean, obviously now, too, but there was somebody who was able to step up and... uh kind of face that issue head on. Her activism in defense of black women carried to the National Council of Women's Rights, where she worked from 1985 to 1989. She ran twice for legislation, and she was chosen as a substitute both times. So I think that's really cool that Mm -hmm. she worked really hard to um, make a place for the people that felt that they weren't being represented. 
So on to the 1960s and 70s, unless you have something else you'd like to add. Nope, I'm ready. All right. Many feminist groups were formed that mostly consisted of middle-class women, much like the feminism you're talking about earlier. It's still a very classist feminist Right, and here's where we'll start seeing the parallels between the waves, right? So, like, you could see the first wave very much did coincide with the first wave in um, the United States. This, I would consider this to be the second wave in Latin America, and it very much coincides with our second wave. Yes, this is when social justice rather than suffrage was emphasized. They emphasized reproductive rights, equal pay, and equality of of legal rights. Uh, it was made clear, though, in my reading that this was not in response to the feminist movements in Euro- U.S. and Europe, but as a result of the activism of Latina women against their position of subordinates. So while I believe that the waves coincided, from what I read... It still needs to be treated as a standalone wave from the particular things that they were. I I with. definitely think it is a standalone thing, but I do think that it is, and I understand where this defensiveness comes from because yes. when I was reading it, it, it felt defensive. Yes, and I understand where that's coming from because it is different. It's distinctly different. However, I do think it's it's naive to think that the two didn't influence each other. Definitely. Um, specifically that United the, the the movement that was happening in the United States did not influence Latin America because it was, you know, for all of America's flaws and issues and however you want to look at it, it America has always been, or the United States, I should say, has always been kind of this, like, powerhouse as far as media is concerned. Yeah. So anything that was happening in the United States that was was prominent, um, and a lot of the writings and things that were coming out of the United States in the 60s and 70s, I have a hard time believing that those didn't influence, at least in part. I believe that they were inspired by it, but I believe that, you know, it was important for them to have their own standings. And it looked completely different as we're we're going to talk about. But I do think, like, there's a reason why so many of these things, we live in a world, and at that time especially, I think we were beginning to really live in a more connected world with, like, TV and, like, world news, quote-unquote. So I think there's a reason why, like, worldwide, we started to see changes happening at the same time. And I believe that from what I've read in other countries, there's it means different things to be a woman. It Absolutely. means different things to have a different race than it does here. Our experience in the United States is one thing, Absolutely. and there could be a whole other experience in another part of the world. And I think the whole thing they're trying to get out of that is by responding to what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a race that maybe is very marginalized, Right. The experience is very different. Yes, Yes, exactly. Yes, yes, yes. I'm not trying to take that away. No, not at all. I I just wanted to point out that, like, there is an interconnectivity, I feel like, worldwide between these movements. And there's a reason why, like, civil rights and social rights seem to peak at the same times in, in, you know, all over the world. I think both can be true. Yeah. Simultaneously. Easily. So a lot of these groups formed because of um, the class struggles in Latin America, Uh, The Cordon Industrial in Chile was a group of working-class people who came together to pressure the government to socialize a number of companies that refused to accept workers' rights. Uh, The Cordobazo in Argentina was a civil uprising in 1969 during the military dictatorship of General Juan Carlos Ongaña, and this is kind of where we're starting to see a lot of feminist groups focus on the uprising against dictatorship and really trying to focus on 
uh, socialism. Yeah, so there were several labor uprisings, and I think we're familiar with, you know, a few of those in the United States. I think Cesar Chavez and stuff Uh like that was beginning to happen around this time. Um, So there were several, like, labor uprisings and student demonstrations specifically in Chile and also in Mexico. And this is where you start to see a very strong, deliberate intersection between... And this is kind of where it splits off from the United States, right? Because while the United States was still very anti-socialism in a lot of ways... Feminism very much par- like parked their flag, planted their flag in with socialism, socialism yeah. in Latin America or in, in several of these Latin American countries. Yeah, this woman, Ross Tabar, says that Ch- Chilean feminism is closely tied to socialism, which goes against the traditional family values enforced on women. She says the traditional family and the dependent role of women, which is reduced to that of a mother. Popular slogans at the time included, women give life, dictatorship exterminates it. And in the day of national protests, let's make love, not the beds, and feminism is liberty, socialism, and so much more. So this makes so much sense when you think about it, because authoritarian regimes and dictatorships, there is a a high focus on traditional family values. Yes, and control of that. I wonder if we can think of any parties in the United States that maybe do similar things Hmm. when you talk about, quote-unquote, family values, and which is a really fucked up thing to say anyway because families look all different ways so and different. you know but you know exactly what people you know mean, what they mean when they say family values it's we a way like of implying that anything that's not a mother father and their children 2.5 kids and a dog is not like a traditional family exactly. right exactly it's um, a very sly way of implicating that what you're doing is wrong so it actually makes a lot of sense that there would be kind of um you know some resistance to this and actually this whole time period i think is super super fucking badass um because yes while there were a lot of like men who were resisting and you know being a arrested and imprisoned uh, during these regimes, it was women who were doing a lot of the grassroots, like, yes. organizing and, like, getting together and, like, fighting against this on, and like... they have been forgotten. <laughs> yeah, they, they have been forgotten because they weren't, like, the people... Most of them weren't the people who were getting, like, arrested. But yeah. they were doing a lot of the behind-the-scenes work... Exactly. ...to, uh, you know, and we'll see it later on, they did a ton of work to get out, like... Um, you know, people who were still in prison, oftentimes like their husbands or sons or grandsons. Um, well, and it was so dangerous yes, too. What they were doing, yeah. like they were they were risking torture, execution, disappearances, yep. all of these things. And women led these movements. It's yeah. really really cool. So brave, honestly, mm-hmm. so so brave. Um, they're saying that at the time, like it, I read on the Wikipedia article that there was a decline of feminist meetings and movements due to the policy of neoliberalism in the region um, because of the dangers that it brought. Was that your understanding from that as well? So basically, I think it was just it got harder and harder for them to actually meet. Okay. Um, because dictatorial regimes kind of settled over the majority of these areas. Yeah. So I think it became difficult to schedule these meetings. Probably it became very difficult to know who you could trust. Yeah. Um, well, because the dangers were so high. Right. And so yeah. things, I think, had to go very, 
very far underground, which dissuaded a lot of people from joining these movements. Because if you have a dictatorial regime um, or an authoritarian regime, and you have feminism, which is being very closely tied to socialism, they are going to want to stomp that out as quickly as possible, right? Because feminists are socialists, and, like, we can't have that. So um, I think it made being a a feminist or labeling yourself as such, maybe even if you didn't closely tie yourself to, like, the word socialism, um, it made anybody who put that label on them a target. target. Yeah. And even if they didn't put the label on them, but still participated in movements that were supporting those causes, incredibly, incredibly dangerous. Um, also, this time in Puerto Rico, the Women of Young Lords, which was actually mostly a group of men, and I'm going to say some of these wrongs, it was usually a group of Boricuan, Afro-Taino men who fought for basic human rights and challenged machismo, sexism, and the patriarchy. So it's like a Puerto Rican he-for-she situation going on. Pretty much. But it was but it was also like women they wanted women to be in power. They wanted women to have voices, but at its height, women only consisted of 40% of this group, yet they were advocating for women to have more of a voice. Mm-hmm. So I believe that while intentions were probably good, that pr- male privilege took over a little bit, I would say. Absolutely. Let's fix still, this for you ladies. We got it. We got it. We got yeah. it. Great. You're part of the group. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we're going to we're going to spearhead But we're going to be the right ones now. in leadership. Yeah. 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 Um, in the 70s, a lot of marginalized women, including Afro-descendant, Afro-descendants, lesbians, indigenous, transgender, sex workers, and domestic workers, began to question hegemonic feminism and tried to integrate intersectionality. So kind of like in the U.S. again as well, which I would say the second wave wasn't totally intersectional. But we were, you know, the civil rights movement was happening around the same time. And I believe that that kind of is mirrored as well in a lot of Latin American countries where they were trying to integrate different types of people into the feminist right. movement. Right. Yeah. This is where you're going to start seeing um, the rise of intersectionality happening in Latin American culture. Um, and this I find to be particularly fascinating, and I will speak on more as we go, because there is such a mix of cultures in Latin uh, and South America mm-hmm. that intersectionality means something almost different yeah. there. And it's kind of a very like interesting thing to look at. It's so very interesting. At this time, you know... So, yes, they began to look at different interlocking types of oppression, which is just intersectionality. Right. Gloria Anzaldúa, of mm-hmm. indig- and she's of indigenous descent. Yeah. Which I think is also something, side note, that we don't talk about enough. We need that, to like, talk about native, native Mexicans and, like, Native South Americans are Native Americans. Like, yeah. they just are. I don't understand why we're making a distinction. But anyway, yeah. um, she's of indigenous descent, and she described her experience with intersectionality as a racial, ideological, cultural, and biological cross-pollination, and called it the uh, a new matizna, matiz, mat, mestiza consciousness. Mm-hmm. New matiza con- consciousness. Wow, I cannot speak today. It's all good. Um... And I think that that is so super fascinating. Yeah, she's real. I read about her a little bit as well, and she is incredibly interesting in her um, ability to raise awareness for the indigenous people. It's pretty awesome. 
So in the 80s, after the fall of dictatorships, feminists began to question established limits of discussions and making things such as violence against women a political topic. So they started making a lot of the feminist issues that were discussed in the 70s into more of a political stance, making them political problems, not just personal problems. Right. And it was at this time as well in the 1980s when we started to see, you know, whenever these dictatorships were starting to fall, that the look of feminism did start changing, and so much of it became advocacy for trying to denounce torture and disappearances and yeah. crimes that happened under the dictatorship. Yeah. And these were mainly, again, headed by women. So these women were coming together, they were meeting in groups, and they were seeing what could be done politically yeah. to not only denounce the crimes that happened at the time, but also, once again, to get these people who were maybe imprisoned during the time um, to be released, and also to get people who committed crimes under the dictatorship to be brought to justice. Exactly. So many of these groups were headed by women. Yes, and they were, like, such an important role of the rise of democracy as well. Like, all of that goes into the democracy being grown in these countries. Um, They were to prioritize human rights in the international agenda. So I think that was also a time where they wanted to be more a part of what was happening all over the world, have what was happening in their countries be seen by everyone and to be seen as important. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Feminists were able to achieve their goals because of political parties, international organizations, and local labor groups. The two forms of the movement were centers for feminist work and street feminism, which just sounds cool. Yep. Um, So in the fourth meeting in Mexico in 1987, which I was looking everywhere for, I'm like, what does the fourth meeting mean? Uh, The fourth meeting of... um the international. You talked about it earlier. That would be, but that, but they said that was in 1916. But so maybe it came back into Mexico. I think it came back. Yes. Okay, because yeah. it wasn't clear. That's and I my was belief. Very when confused. I was when I read the article, I thought the same thing. But that's what I took it to mean. Okay, that, <laughs> yeah. I mean that makes sense to me. Um, there was a signed document on the myths of the feminist movement, which included: feminists are not interested in power. Feminists do politics in a different way. All feminists are the same. There is a natural unity for the mere fact of being women. Feminism exists only as a policy of women towards women. The movement is a small group. The women's species ensure for themselves a positive space. Personal personal is automatically political. The consensus is democracy. This is important because different countries in Latin America push feminism in their own way. They wanted to say, look, these are some of the myths that you've heard. This isn't these aren't true everywhere. Feminism, by you saying feminists aren't interested in power, we are interested in power. We are looking to get more involved into politics. Just because we're all women doesn't mean we're all singing kumbaya and everything is peaceful and we agree on everything. Um, I also really like that they brought up the fact that it's not just women for women. It's women for everybody. These myths were commonly disputed at Latin American and Caribbean meetings in the 80s called Encuentros, a space created to strengthen feminist networks, exchange analysis, and confront conditions of oppression. The Eurocentros were a place for political discussion, not of a sisterhood. It was a way to discuss the happenings in their individual countries, come together and find a way for them to have their differences in each country come together for one solid movement. Yes. Very cool. Very cool. They're like, not a sisterhood. We're not getting around singing Kumbaya. In the 1990s, feminists began to create their own autonomous organizations. In 94, the Zapatista National National Liberation Army became a catalyst for indigenous women's organizations in Mexico and created the Women's Revolutionary Law. Their example influenced other indigenous tribes, such as the Mayans, Quichas, and Quiches. 
the Zapatista was an inspiration for feminists around the world. Scholars argue there is a strong correlation between the improvement of legal rights for Latin American women and the country's struggle for democracy. The In Ecuador's Constitution of 1998, MUDE, or Women for Democracy, stated that what is not good for democracy is not good for women. Nice. So today, feminist dialogues are accompanied by other social movements where they focus on global mobilization at different government meetings and multi-international organizations where there's discussion of humanity's future. Current feminist groups in Latin America include Ecuador's Flor de Azalea, which is the oldest movement for sex, sex workers in Latin America, and the Fraternal Black Organization of Honduras. These groups are local, but accept members from all parts of Latin America. That's really cool. Isn't it great? Um, I, I did read an article also talking about, I think it was released, or it was written probably 10 years ago or so, but it was talking about there being a massive surge in feminism that happened in the kind of beginning of the new millennium mm-hmm. um, and is continuing on to today. Like, there was about um, a couple of years span, I think, from about, like, 2005 to 2007, where there was a massive uptick in attendance um, for kind of these, like, feminist movements. Mm-hmm. So I thought that that was very interesting, that those things kind of happened at that time. And yeah. it really did get this kind of snowball effect rolling um, that I think has continued on to today. I would agree. So, as is everywhere, but particularly we're talking about Latin American uh, countries, there's a weak relationship between lesbians and feminism. Lesbianism and feminism, as this article says. Since the 1960s, lesbians have become a viable group in Latin America, establishing groups to fight misogynistic oppression against lesbians, fight AIDS in the LGBTQ community, and support one another. Because of military groups and dictatorships, these groups have had to break apart, reinvent, and reconstruct their work. In the 2000s, the goals set by feminist groups include a more organized LGBTQ community across Latin America and change the domestic policies that discriminate against them. They aim to have more feminists in office, advocate for LGBTQ rights in the political world, and encourage other countries to help protect feminists and the LGBTQ community in Latin America. Um, So I think there is a lot of mirrors there, but I would assume that in a lot of those countries with what we were talking about when it comes to religion and traditional family values, getting out of a dictatorship, creating a democracy, having rights for the LGBT community would be tough. Right. I mean, I think it was very much seen as not as much of a priority. Yeah. Um, Whereas, I mean, it's all a priority. Like, it all matters. I just think whenever you're looking at the broader spectrum of, like, people actually being captured, imprisoned, and tortured, um, it became something that was put on the back burner. Yeah. I think now we probably, we, I'm not living in Latin America, but I I do think that (laughs) there should be a shift and more of a focus because, you know, as we've said before, like, women's rights are human rights. LGBTQ rights are human rights. Um, And it's really time to shift our focus to, for human rights in the more broader sense to include those lives. Well, and I think that the the group Groups uh, like the lesbian groups and the feminist groups were like I don't think the feminist groups were really allowing them to come in and be a part of what they were doing because much like when we look at early feminism in the United States with the abolitionist movement and the suffragette movement is that or in the suffrage movement is that they were willing to abandon the abolitionist movement in order to get what they wanted right and I wonder how much of it is you know parallel to the second wave 
feminism movement in the United States where there was the lavender scare, right? The lavender yeah. menace, rather, um, where <laughs> there was this fear that if you allowed, you know, lesbian women to be too much of a voice in the feminist movement, yeah. that it would jeopardize the entire movement by making exactly. people think, oh, well, they're all just lesbians and they all hate men or whatever. Which whatever. is a huge I mean, it's a, it's, trope of it's feminism. It's incredibly, incredibly ignorant. Um, but I do know that Betty Friedan in the United States and a lot of second wave feminists yeah. had that belief that yeah. like we need to distance ourselves from the LGBTQ exactly. community rather than using, you know, that community Banding to together. be a voice exactly. for, you know, for for the whole movement. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, we can talk a little bit more about indigenous feminism, which you brought up earlier. Indigenous Latin American feminists have little to no political representation, and it wasn't until the 2000s that indigenous feminist leaders were able to gain any political power, and they are still today looking for representation and political identity, which uh, sadly is true for indigenous people all over. Yes. Yeah. It's definitely true in the United States as well. Yeah. Um, some experts, such as Julie Shane, believe that feminism in Latin America should be called revolutionary feminism, as revolutionary fem- feminism is one born of revolutionary mobilization. So they believe that their feminist movement really comes from their rise against the dictatorships and their revolution that they created. They're not wrong. They're not wrong <laughs> at all. The role of women is important to any revolution, but it is often forgotten and history has been rewritten because of the machismo and sexism in Latin American countries. Feminist mobilization or gathering can be seen in Shane's research of Chilean women and their nation's government organized Mother's Center. They are gatherings of women sharing their stories of oppression and domestic violence, which led to the strategic feminist mobilization and can be found in many Latin American countries. The gatherings were derived from the Encent, the, I'm going to, I always say this wrong, Encentros, Encentros in the 1980s, which we talked about earlier. They were very much inspired by that. The meetings gather grassroots and professional feminists together. And I think it reminds me of kind of like a support group, like a political support Mm -hmm. group for Chilean women. I think that's really cool. Post-suffrage feminism covers mainly three big streams. The feminist stream, the stream of political parties, and the stream of women in political parties. Issues include voluntary maternity slash responsible paternity, divorce law reform, equal pay, personal autonomy, challenging negative and sexist portrayal of women in media, and access to formal political representation. In recent years, Latin American feminists have challenged Eurocentric feminist frameworks by promoting literature and art by women of color and establishing their own social groups. They have fought to challenge traditional nationalists who oppress women and use their political power to subjugate non-heterosexuals, women, and people of color. And I think I've seen that a lot in the United States as well when we have a great... um, I would say community of feminists of color and of the Latinx community who work really hard to make sure that their culture's art and literature is on display and is seen with the same amount of importance as a lot of European art and culture. Absolutely, and to make sure that it's represented. Because I do feel like there is this kind of large chasm, not only, I mean, again, it comes from the fact that so much of feminist theory and so much of what we believe to be true in regards to feminism has come out of um, a lot of the literature yeah. and documentation. And so much of that has 
come out of, because of, you know, racism, so much of it has come out of North America and a largely upper-class white Eurocentric yes. viewpoints um, that it does, like, make it difficult um, or it makes it look as though the art and the literature and all of the other things to come out of other countries, not just Latin America, but also Africa, also, you know, oceanic countries and yeah. um, continents and things like that as well um, is less important. Yeah. And it it isn't. And so with that, I'm going to segue into talking a little bit about Latinx people or Latinas and feminism, because it's not just there's this whole rich, vibrant culture of Latinas in the United States as well, or Latinx people in the United States as well. So in the United States, in Central America and in South America, what I have found most is that there is this what I what I loved reading about whenever I was doing research for this episode was that there is this really rich, um, beautiful kind of intersectionality that yeah. happens. And I think there's a long way to go. I think that um, there is still a lot of discrimination, us versus, um, them. us versus them kind of mentality, even within certain communities. Yeah. Um, but I think that these cultures are so like rich and interesting. Yeah. I think it's important to acknowledge differences between countries and cultures, but also to realize that banding together with a lot of your similarities is also important. Right. And I think that, honor both. that we as, um, you know, feminists in the United States or even like, you know, sitting in this room, we have have a a white person who is a feminist and a black person who is a feminist and realizing that our feminism is going to be different and also what our ideas of what intersectionality is within the United States is going to be different because there is the greater intersectionality that we have talked about so much on this show Um, but then there is a very there is a much more specific intersectionality that goes on within the Latinx community um, and what that means so I pulled up a couple of different I read a couple of different articles that I'm just going to quote here. So this is from a Medium article by Leslie Maria Aguilar. And um, she says, to put it quite simply, by virtue of time and the stabilization of their primarily forced migration into the U.S., blacks have congregated more closely with one another and have developed a culture that is, while different regionally, by and large cohesive. Mm -hmm. As such, black intersectional feminism can be captured relatively well by one group, like the Okobahi River Collective. However, Latin Americans' migration into the U.S. is ongoing and nation-specific allegiances and transnational connections continue. Additionally, there is the question of race and ethnicity within the Latin American community, with with most claiming Latin as an ethnicity with a multitude of races, including Afro-Latina, Euro-Latinas, Indigenous, and a mix of each of these abundant throughout the Hispanic community. Latin American feminism is reflective of three primary aspects, national allegiances, ethnic racial allegiances, even within the same country of origin, and and the continued connection many Latin American immigrants retain to their birth or ancestral countries, mm-hmm. all of which influence the way Latina women in the U.S. respond to a plethora of injustices. Yeah. Okay, so that was a lot. To break that down, it, it makes so much sense to me. I thought she explained it super well, where she it's did. like, black Americans, while 
by and large, we have had our culture completely stripped away from us, yes. right? Like we can't pinpoint, you know, you, you know, my fiance can say, my mom's from Ireland, my dad is from uh, the Philippines, and like these are my cultures. Yeah. Black Americans don't have that. They right. just have black American culture because we have been able to kind of like band together and develop essentially a fairly cohesive culture, right. you know, varying slightly depending on where you are. Whereas the migration to the United States, we're talking about Latinx feminism in the United States, is ongoing and continual. It's people yeah. who, there are some people whose families have been here for generations and some people who are coming over right now. And that and will change. And families, like, I feel like uh, Mexicans in Texas, there's such a bizarre thing with, like, them being called immigrants when really, like, they didn't move. They yeah, were, we, they we, stayed crossed, put. we crossed them. Yeah. You know what I mean? So there's there's all of these regional differences and also, like, everyone is coming in kind of at a different time, which is going yeah. to uh, inform the way that they look at their own feminism. And yeah, then, and, and their culture is being very different. Right. And yeah. then on top of that, you can have a Euro-Latina who is from the Dominican Republic and also an Afro-Latina from the Dominican Republic. And yep. they're... Their kind of viewpoints on what their culture is because of where they're from, because and the feminist issues within absolutely their country. is going to be completely different. Yeah. And there's there's such a, a mix of this, and it's difficult, I think, sometimes to try and balance that. So, when talking about like Lat- Latin American fem- feminism and also Latinx people and Latinas within feminism, it's kind of a very complex and nuanced conversation very much. because. The experiences of these people is going to be different. There's yeah. going to be a different experience between an indigenous person from Mexico and maybe like a Euro Latina from Brazil. Exactly. Um, it's, it's harder. It will be harder to band together when all of your experiences differ so much. It's hard to find a common ground, I feel, with a lot of those people because we are still playing into a lot of class Mm-hmm. Um, passing the way that you look, mm-hmm. yes. Um, economic background, standings, yes. Things like uh, that. Uh, so there's a ton of class issues. There's a ton of colorism, colorism and racism issues as yeah. well. Um, and then this uh, I got from the National Sexual Violence Resource Center in an article titled "Long Live the Latino and Hispanic Feminism." If we want to understand Latin American and Hispanic feminism, we have to understand that it stems from an endeavor based not only on gender discrimination, but also on religion, race, Mm -hmm. ethnicity, and language. Latin America, for example, has a population that among all the joint countries adds more than 626 million people, and it does include with this a multiplicity of languages, apart from the official ones, Spanish, Portuguese, and French, diverse indigenous communities of Peru, Chile, Bolivia, Ecuador, Mexico, and Guatemala Guatemala share languages such as, I'm sorry already, uh, Quechua, Guarani, Aymara, Nahuti, and Maya. I think I said a lot of those wrong. Uh, Which translates to a different way of interacting with the the reality that surrounds them of cultural appropriation of cultural appropriation but on all to differentiate themselves from western men and women so i love that she included in this also religion and also like differences in there's a language barrier like yeah. you well, know and even within spanish there is like i learned from 
my ex's family being from Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic, there are certain phrases and words that they say there that is maybe not said in Mexico or right. Ecuador, you know? Yeah, yeah. And we're talking about 600 plus million people. Yeah. Um, all of very varying, you know, that's the thing is like, they're all of incredibly varying cultures. However, like we as Americans are always going to lump them together yeah. as Latinos, Latinas, Latinx, Hispanic. Yeah. Like we're going to lump them all in kind of the same group when really what they are facing and the challenges that they're facing are very unique to yeah. each and every like area and socioeconomic class and religion. Um, yeah all of it. Yeah. it it all plays a factor in the way that feminism is expressed within any given yeah. country or culture right which is why i hope through this episode my kind of goal was to talk on a broader scale and then give people and us the opportunity now to go into other cultures more specifically, other religions, other feminist movements, and be able to analyze those more specifically now that we kind of have a broad history of what it looked like in Latin America in general. Yeah. What was happening in some of these individual countries is incredibly fascinating and yes, important. Yeah, and I hope that that came across. You know, I, I was a little hesitant about this just because I didn't want it to come across as if we, we were, were them we were painting all of Central and South America with one big broad brush as, you know, Latinx or Hispanic communities. Um, we know that there's a lot of nuances in there, but we also, you know, wanted to celebrate these cultures and celebrate these accomplishments, especially during this month. And we this think it's is really a, important. Yeah, and this is a way that we can touch on a lot of different Absolutely. points of those things. Mm-hmm. Again, we hope this came across in the right way. Yeah, I mean, and um, if you have stuff that you want to um, tell us about, please do. Again, we are sorry that we definitely butchered so, so many, many names, of these words. places, words. Um, <laughs> we are very aware <laughs> that we did that, and we're sorry, but we hope that we were still able to give you some good information. Yeah, yeah. we try. We yeah. really, we, we always have the best of intentions. We do. Even when we, we do. make mistakes, we're our not intentions trying to be, are good. <laughs> not trying to be insulting at not all. Not at all. You guys, I would really love to hear responses from people in these different Latin American countries, people with these experiences. Reach out to us. Tell us things that we missed. Tell us people that you love from these countries in the feminist movement that you want us to focus on. I want to hear all of that stuff. Go ahead and email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com. You can follow us and direct message us on Instagram at Angry Neighborhood Feminist. Catch us on Twitter. We sometimes hang out there at Yanf Podcast, Y-A-N-F Podcast. We have a Facebook business and group page. Rate and review us on our business page. We love it so much. Also, please review us and rate us on Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate it. If you don't already, go ahead and listen to us on Radio Public. Preview to listen. Help us out a little bit. I lost my words for a second. You're good. I almost went off script. You're right. All right, you guys. Thank you so much for listening to another episode. That's all we have for you today. With all that being said, we encourage you to to rage on. Bye. Bye. Hey, it's Mae Whitman, and I play Frankie in the new Realm podcast, The Sisters. The Sisters is about a museum curator of medical oddities who investigates the origins of a mutated skeleton with two layers of bones. Seven ribs are completely fused, and you have no idea where this came from? No, she was sent here anonymously. Uh Uh-uh, not she... They, maybe? Wait. I've never seen anything like this. 
Soon, she uncovers an extraordinary mystery that connects her present with one family's tragic past in hauntingly dangerous ways. My grandfather was a journalist back in the 60s and 70s. He specialized in strange stories. Who are they? How are they connected to the skeleton? Play the tape. You'll see. Listen to The Sisters wherever you get your podcasts. We dream about it. We both dream about it. How often? Every night.